On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. A varied uh, palette of front pages uh, today for the Sunday papers. Um, we'll start with the business post, why not? Uh, fuel and energy tax cuts set to be extended as part of a special €2 billion Euro budget package, we're told. Uh, again, already talking about the budget. It's only just gone July. We've been talking about it for a month already. I can't help but think that the political stakes are, are huge for this one. Um, the government is set to extend the current fuel tax cuts and the reduced VAT rate for electricity as part of a budget package in excess of €2 billion Euro aimed at easing the cost of living crisis. Ministers are due to sign off tomorrow on the summer economic statement, which will give an update on the government's budgetary framework. Uh, the current existing budget package of 1.5 billion, which was made up of tax cuts of 500 million euro and spending increases of about a billion, is expected to be increased to a figure in excess of 2 billion euro. One government source said the tax package, which will be focused on increasing income tax bans and credits, will be worth a lot more than 500 million euro, and it will be matched again by a similar-sized social welfare package. But the Business Post understands that a repeat of this year's 200 euro electricity credit for households is unlikely, unlikely, says this paper, with supports said to be targeted instead at lower income families using schools like the fuel allowance or a further back to school allowance payment. And I point out the electricity credit because there's going to be another report in a moment which which questions that. Um, But also for now on the front page of the Business Post, Ireland's power system has been put into a very dangerous position, says the paper, after the British government last week threatened to cut off gas supplies to European countries, senior energy experts have warned. Uh, the warnings come even though the British ambassador to Ireland told the Business Post that his country would not cut off gas supplies to Ireland in the event of Europe-wide shortages due to the invasion of Ukraine. But the Financial Times reported this week that the British government was preparing an emergency plan which would involve cutting off its pipelines to continental Europe if there were shortages. So that's, uh, that's something else to worry about in the midst of, of everything else as well. Um, the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, claims by senior guardie that no one came to harm as a result of the cancellation of 999 calls have been dispute, disputed by security sources who say that some of the emergency calls related to rapes, domestic violence and assaults on women and children. A small number of calls made in Dublin related to alleged rapes, while others were made by people as they were being attacked. Among them was a female traveller from Meath who had sought help after she was subjected to a violent assault in which she was bitten in the face and kicked in the stomach. She told Gardaí she was about to be attacked again but got no response. Another 999 caller from Galway reported that youth were trying to set an intellectually disabled boy's hair on fire. There are many other similar incidents, according to Garda sources. The policing authority, which has been investigating this whole scandal of the cancellation of 999 calls, has received contradictory accounts uh, during its public meetings with Garda management about the issue, which was first highlighted by the Sunday Times. The authority has been told that on at least two occasions, no one came to extreme harm as a result of the cancellation of thousands of calls between 2019 and 2000. But evidently, some security sources telling the newspaper uh, that doesn't tell the full story at all. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, more than 25 members of RTE's News and Current Affairs Division were infected with COVID-19 last week. It's suspected that many of them contracted it at a going-away party. Now, sources at the station have stressed that no programmes were taken off-air as a result, which shows such as the week in politics being unaffected. One reason is that no technical staff were infected, while some journalists and presenters who test positive have still been able to work from home. The likelihood that the surge was caused by a super spreader event has caused some unease in Montrose because of the controversy in late 2020 about social distancing not being observed at a going away party. 
Sources at RT emphasised that this going away event was not organised by the station but that it was a private affair. Uh, there are 300 staff in the division, they also pointed out. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, Owen Harris has received an apology but no damages from a news talk presenter who published a false allegation against him on Twitter. That's Kieran Cudahy who has tweeted um, about that inside the last 24 hours or so. Uh, and also the Prince of Wales gave an honour to a controversial Tory peer who spent £1.7 million bailing out his failed eco-village in a string of secretive deals being investigated by a charity watchdog. Um, that is a fascinating story, albeit a, a bit of a word salad of, of a front uh, paragraph. We might get to that maybe uh, a little bit later in the programme. We talk, might talk to George Parker about it in the second hour. Um, the front page of the Sunday Independent. A large majority of people believe the army should be drafted in to help at Dublin Airport. Um Suffice to say, there, there's an opinion poll uh, as conducted by, by Ireland Thinks for the paper. 64% of people believe that the army should uh, be deployed uh, to try and assist with the, the running of the airport. 32% say no, 4% unsure. A colleague of mine got in touch with me this morning to say that the queues at Terminal 2, despite only being advertised as about 40 or 45 minutes on Dublin Airport's website are about an hour and 15 minutes and that no sooner can you get up the escalators uh, for anyone who's familiar with Terminal 2 immediately you are already in the queue because the queue to get through security is so extensive that not all lanes I'm told are open the crowd is being compliant uh, but a little bit frustrated at the extent of the delays but it's interesting that they're they're effectively waiting 75 minutes when the official advice is that they can get through uh, in 45 um, also on the front page of the Sunday Dependent Government funding for Irish amateur boxing could be cut by 15% as early as next week and all state backing withdrawn by early next year unless the sports governing authority uh, agrees to major reforms within days. That's an interview with um, the Minister for Sports Affairs, Jack Chambers. Uh, And also on the front page of Sunday Independent, one week's extra payment of the state pension and social welfare to 1.4 million people this autumn is being considered by the government. Uh, A double payment effectively akin to the traditional Christmas bonus uh, is being considered for the autumn as part of a number of immediate one-off measures to help ease the cost of living crisis. The measure would cost about 350 million euro, could be announced on budget day and then could be set for uh, separate to the tax and spending package for 2023. Uh, But the Sindo says that extra fuel allowance payments to eligible households and another €200 electricity credit, which you might remember was ruled out by another paper, are also being considered uh, as part of the one-off measures. There is some resistance in Fianna Fáil to another €200 electricity credit because it's not means-tested and it would go to some wealthy households that don't need it. Uh, But Fine is believed to be more in favour of that universal payment, which would cost around uh, €400 million. Uh, So a little bit of uh, briefing and counter-briefing there about what's coming up. And finally, for now, the Irish Mail on Sunday... The Defence Forces have not referred anyone convicted of sexual assault or rape in a court-martial to the Sex Offenders Register during the 20 years that it has been in operation. Army chiefs admit that they don't have full records of court-martial convictions for sexual assault or rape since 2002, but using secondary sources they've been able to confirm that no referrals have taken place, which of course would be mandatory for anyone convicted of the same crimes in a civilian court. Basically, this this all goes back to the, the Women of Honour controversy which has been running for some time but effectively what's supposed to happen is that if you are convicted in a court martial which is like a parallel military justice for uh, in instances where both the perpetrator and the victim are members of the defence forces um, you should in theory be referred on to the sex offenders register so if there have been any convictions then those people have gotten away without being included in the register or you might conclude that in fact there haven't been uh, any convictions at all that's the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday so a fairly uh, varied uh, front pages today as of the papers as I've said 
Uh, we're joining us here to go through them by, and much more by Rachel Iredale, who's a consulting director with RSM Ireland, and by Brida Brown, who's a PR director of Unique Media. Um, good morning to you both. Brida, I'll start with yourself. There's a lot written, as I just dwell on there, about the cost of living, about the budget, um, an awful lot to get through. Where do you want to start? What's jumping out for you this morning? I'm actually not sure where to start because at this time of the year, you're sort of hoping that things are going to start calming down a little bit, especially with the dull recess coming up now on the 14th of, of July. Usually it's a scramble to get a lot of legislation mm. sorted out between now and then. We saw what happened last year with um, our president, Michael D. Higgins, when he uh, gave out to uh, yeah. to the to the government for leaving everything to be so last mm. minute. So it mm. seems to Tell me... Tell you now, not to interrupt you, they have not learned that lesson. No, they haven't learned that lesson. a frantic fortnight coming up. Absolutely. And I'm actually waiting um, maybe on another statement from the president <laughs> to come out over, over the next couple of weeks. No, they haven't, because there's a huge amount of legislation that's still, um, that's still in the offing on top of everything else that's going on at the moment. Um, so no, there's no, no quiet period coming up. And if anything, Gavin, it's going to ramp up because now Tuesday, the 27th of September is being touted as the day for budget. So that's it's only two weeks ahead of what the normal date is. Um, but the doll will be back when around the middle of September. Usually, Usually yes. Usually around yeah. the middle of September. We have the ploughing championships the week after. And then we're going straight into this. So to be honest, I don't think it's going to be a quiet summer at all. No. And if anything, the opposition are going to have to, you know, and will sort of continue, shall we say, hammering the government. Now, all we've seen really in the past couple of weeks or all, all I've been sort of aware of is Sinn Féin. Um, and Mary Lou Macdonald has come out very hard in terms of the cost of living. The other opposition parties have been very quiet. I haven't seen that much from Labour or from, from the, the Social Democrats. So I imagine they need to use that time frame now over the next while if they do want to get their voice heard mm. um, uh, to be talking more about, about the cost of living. Mm. So look, what oh, have yeah, we got? We've on, speculation. On then, because there's a lot of, yeah, of speculation. It's, it's all and speculation. It your eye. Yeah, there's a huge amount of speculation. There's a couple of interesting pieces. Obviously, you know, that €200 Euro credit for um, for gas and electricity, I think would, would be a benefit. And didn't Pascal Donoghue say during the week he was more interested in one-off payments as opposed yeah. to long term yeah, his concern is that if, if you unwound. increase uh, welfare rates all round for example although of course they will do it to a certain point but if you do it all round and you, you do it to try and help people cope with a short term increase in the cost of living mm-hmm. then it's very difficult then to unwind them afterwards and you've basically baked it in as permanent so he'd like to do one off measures if he could Exactly and then the two other pieces that are mentioned by the Business Post are um, that the government could excise duty by 20% on the litre of petrol 15% on diesel and they're there, those rates are due to end in October so mm. again I imagine they will be extended and interestingly the cut in the VAT rate on electricity and gas as well is due to expire in October and they will definitely I think be extended given mm. the the and prices over the past couple of days. Uh, when you put it all together though, Rachel, when, when the uh, the Business Post spells out that originally it was supposed to be a package of 1.5 billion and now they're looking at 2 billion and usually they split that two to one between uh, spending increases and tax measures. But if you look at the costs of just doing the, the things that, that Breeze just summarised there, for example, um, extending the cut on excise for petrol and diesel would cost 420 million euro in a single year and that's not already hmm. baked in so that'll have to be something uh, afresh. Uh, the cut on, on VAT again from 135 to 9% for electricity those already seem to gobble up an awful lot of the money that the government might have at its disposal which seems like it could be a big danger if people are expecting the government to be able to do new things mm. and I all they're getting is existing measures rolled over. I think that's why we're talking about the budget now. We're managing expectations for the public, you know, uh, the measures that they're talking about. That will literally keep things um, going as is. There'll be very minor adjustments to making big changes. Very interesting article in the Business Post today, Aidan Reid looks at 
um, mm. what is going to work or what is not going to work in terms of ending this crisis on the cost of living and inflation. Mm. Um, he very much takes a social scientist perspective. I'm a social scientist by background and we're looking at a complex system and a yeah. tinker here and a think- tinker there like an extra 10 euro isn't going to make uh, any difference. So what does then? What what does Interesting, I saw some research by St. Vincent de Paul this week that said something like uh, a sustained increase, not a one-off increase, a sustained increase of 20 euro a week is probably what the poorest families in Ireland actually need uh, mm. to mitigate some of these costs uh, increase. But the the article by uh, Aidan Reiden in the uh, Business Post looks really at how the interdependencies in a complex system are really, really difficult to unravel. What struck me about the newspapers today is I've learned so much about bread <laughs> and about energy. Yeah. You know, where our food comes and where yeah. our energy comes from. A lot of your listeners are probably sat at home, flicking the kettle on, having a cup of coffee, mm. popping the toast in the toaster. Have they given any thought mm. to how those things happen in our world? Yeah. And there's two or three articles across the papers this morning that explain a lot of those and really do um, labour the point about about how interdependent we all are, how much of our dependency on Britain mm-hmm. is is going to pan out over the next few months mm-hmm. as well, and that what that might be if if Boris Johnson gets all yeah. um, nationalistic and our uh, interdependency on food from yeah. Russia and from the Ukraine. Well, yeah, I was going to say because that that's I, I'd imagine without knowing which article mm-hmm. you're referring to, I'd imagine that if you're talking about the rising cost of bread, that a lot of it is to do with Ukraine not exporting its grain, which mm-hmm. means that even if we are largely self-sufficient for grain production yeah. in Ireland that the overall price worldwide just raises that much higher if Ukraine isn't able yeah. to get any of its own so, so the UN Secretary General this week talked about multiple famines at the end of this year and I mean and he said let that term sink in mm. multiple famines across the world of an order that we've never quite seen in the past I mean some of the stats this is from the Sunday Business Post plus uh, talking about how Almost all of the food over the last hundred years is dominated by four big companies known as the ABC companies. They employ close to a quarter of a million people and they generate about 350 billion worth of profit every year. But they pretty much run everything to do with wheat, rice, soya and corn. And bizarrely, I didn't know this before today, Russia and the Ukraine are two of the largest exporters of those foodstuffs to Mm. the rest of the world. Mm. You know, so the Ukraine, for example, feeds 200 people, million people every year. The problem with multiple famines won't be that the um, that there's a lack of food because the Black Sea is really important here. It's that the food isn't going to be able to get out of the Ukraine and be distributed. Yeah, we had had the chief executive of Oxfam Ireland, Jim Clarkin, on this program about a month ago, I think. And he was already talking about a a report that they just issued about how uh, compounded by COVID and climate change that the Horn of Africa was already in serious bother mm-hmm. and at that time they were saying that Somalia a country of 16 million people could potentially have 350,000 children and, and I don't want to rush over that figure 350,000 children could potentially die of malnutrition or starvation mm-hmm. in Somalia alone this summer alone because Ukraine's grain which would usually fall back and cover them if they couldn't grow their own was just not going to exist Mm -hmm. this year and the only way to avert that was to basically unblock the ports and get the grain out immediately mm-hmm. and that was a month ago and it hasn't happened so so all these things are definitely going to compound and it's going yeah, to be a, and I think, a very I think difficult summer really. sort of people do forget how much impact um, the, the global system has on us because during the week we saw the food prices uh, went up quite significantly and prices for milk, cheese and eggs were 25% higher here in Ireland than the European average so a lot of people were saying to me like why though we produce all of those products here in Ireland mm. a lot of those dairy products and the reason is because generally the prices are set at an international level mm. because they're internationally 
traded. So while we produce the products here, we don't necessarily have uh, a remit over the pricing of them. So that's, that's uh, the but, issue. But yet we end up paying more for them than a lot of other European consumers do. And so on, on one hand, you'd think, right, well, sure, there must be a global mm. benchmark price. Yeah. But on the other hand, we're, we're paying more mm-hmm. than the rest of Europe despite producing it. So people will wonder, it does, come about. it doesn't make sense. And then again, the other, you know, we are buffered as well to an extent talking about the, the global economy and the Irish economy uh, to the amount of multinational companies that we have based here as well. So again, they're talking about the fact that there is a recession hitting in the US at the moment um, and that it, there could be, a, you know, a, a tail end of 12 to 18 months before it gets here. But we already have seen that um, Meta during the week announced that they are going to be laying off some people in the States. So you sort of start seeing mm-hmm. that knock on effect. Yeah. And if that comes down the chain here and we see how much we rely on multinational companies here, yeah. we could have an issue. Yeah, there's been uh, even some discussion about whether we should go back to that rainy day fund idea and uh, re-fence off some of the corporate tax revenues because they might not be there forever. But I suspect mm. that a lot of people would say uh, now is mm. the rainy day. Mm. Um, I don't mean to, to me to drag you back to the same piece, Rachel, but you mentioned um, Aidan Regan's uh, feature in the, in the Business Post on page 18 uh, and admitting that basically no one knows what will or won't work mm-hmm. uh, to end the inflation crisis. But if you were to increase interest rates, then it might take some of the heat out of it. But it generally means that economies suffer and we go into recession, doesn't it? I think he includes concludes that's not a good yeah. idea. It can lead to, um, it stabilises prices a little bit, but there's a potential outcome could be stagflation, for example. Yeah. So you do have high inflation, but you've got weak growth, for example. Um, what needs to happen really is wages to rise a little bit and let those stabilise um, and then hope that... Um, uh, prices stabilise over time. Mm. The um, big thing he points out, though, is um, energy rationing. And I think that's a more mm. immediate crisis in Ireland, for example. Again, lots of articles uh, across all the papers today about where our energy comes from and the fact that Ireland gets 70% of its energy from Britain. Mm. There's about four channels that it comes through. And the possibility that Britain might turn off that energy supply um, at some time over the coming months uh, so the prices in the UK are lower for British customers means that effectively we would we possibly talking about energy rationing over the winter. If we had a mild winter like last winter, mm. you know, that might be OK. But if we're going into some severe weather, that could be really, really damaging as yeah. people just simply can't afford to pay energy bills. Uh, we won't go too deep into the uh, the opinion poll in the Sunday Independent because I think from, from a party political perspective, it doesn't tell us a huge amount. We didn't already know Sinn Féin mm. remaining mm. by some distance the most popular party. Um, but there's uh, someone has, has pointed out, is it maybe Jodie Corcoran in his analysis piece has pointed out that if the cost of living is now a huge concern for most people and 68% of people listed as one of their top two concerns that so few people are listing the Russia-Ukraine war as mm-hmm. a concern even though Breda one could pretty conclusively be pegged as having contributed significantly to the other. Yeah, and essentially he's, he's he's saying that there's a disconnect there. People aren't associating one with the other. Um, and interestingly, on the on the issues that are mentioned in this uh, survey as well, again, cost of living, housing and healthcare were the top three. Um, but right down, like COVID has gone off the agenda totally. COVID mm. is down to 4%. But childcare, Despite Gavin... everyone having it. Just might, exactly. Um, but childcare, Gavin, 2%. And again, this is always an issue that comes up again and again. I just was surprised to see it right very much down at the, at the very end of that. The other aspect that I found really interesting in this survey as well is is people were asked, what is the principal reason you do not support Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael? And this, this question was asked of those who, who don't support them and mm. obviously are, are supporting another party. 43% said it was their failure to tackle housing and health care. 
So interesting that they are saying it's around a policy issue as opposed to an overview of the ideology of the party yeah. or their view on the leadership of the party. So, I mean, there has to be back rooms in the various parties now looking at that today and sort of going, OK, how can we, if it's not about ideology or personalities, what do we need to do with policy to, to get those voters back? But what they need to do with policy is get their act together. Because again, as we said, like legislation, everything is just so slow in this yeah. country, you know? Uh, I mm. thought particularly telling as well that when they asked the, the Sinn Féin voters... Uh, which of the following would you say is the main reason you support them? And 49% of them, nearly half of the Sinn Féin vote, simply say, for change. Mm-hmm. I'm against Fianna Fáil yeah. and Fianna Gwell because I'm people are so itchy yeah. for something different. Yeah. I'm fascinated with what the political landscape looks like now. As you know, I left Ireland for a couple of decades. Um, Sinn Féin was very much a party on the margins of Irish society. Consistently, poll after poll, we have another one last night that's showing, you know, in, in terms of popularity, Mary Lou MacDonald, the party. It's very difficult to distinguish policy-wise between Fine Gael and mm. Fianna Foyle now, mm. uh, you know, other than maybe a few economic policies. Mm. But if what people want, though, is change, and I'll, I'll go to a break mm. after this because we're already piling up on time. Um, if what people want is change, then does that suggest that basically the rest, if the rest, if this government runs for another almost three years, as it may, um, doesn't that mean that it, it's already a bit of a busted flush because it doesn't matter what they do, the people just want something different. Something different. But then, interestingly, Mary Lou mentioned in, Mary Lou MacDonald mentioned in an article and she did in the Irish Times today, sorry, it was an interview in the Sunday Times today, mm. she said it's going to take two terms, two terms for yeah. her party to resolve mm. some of the issues. Two terms is what? Ten years? Ten years. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's looked at the current existing mm. administration and going, hang on, they're there too long, but she's still talking about te- needing ten years for change, you know? Yeah, uh, they're a little bit more like Boris Johnson they might think if Boris Johnson is already talking about serving into the 2030s, maybe that's already mm. the, the Sinn Féin agenda. Uh, someone on Twitter says, the government keeps saying that in- inflation is international, but then uh, they, they keep talking as if they could contribute to a rise. Uh, does that make sense? This person saying that you can't possibly, you know, give people more money or you can't spend that much because it would contribute to inflation if they're saying that inflation is caused by global factors and not domestic ones. There's a point to that, isn't it? Well, and again, this is, it's a really delicate balancing act at the moment and this is what the government have to look at, obviously with the economic statement tomorrow and then going towards the budget. You know, if they do too much too quickly, it's going to cause a problem. If they don't do enough, it's going to cause a problem. So Mm. really, to be honest, I I wouldn't like to be in their shoes at the moment. Jim and Kerry texts 53106 to say, let's be honest, these proposed monies to the most vulnerable has been driven by the poor showing in the polls. Well, even if it is shown by the poor showing in the polls, I think people would be uh, grateful to get the money uh, no matter what. Um, somebody says that they live somewhere. I, I don't know what, where they've said. I think there might, might be a typo. I live in Ballon. I don't know where Ballon is or Ballon. Does anyone know where Ballon is? I think it's in Tipperary or somewhere along If you know where it is, you might let us know. I can confirm that I buy eggs significantly cheaper from Aldi or Tesco than from Ballon Eggs. Some local supplier. I was going to say Ballon Eggs. Some local supplier and they find their eggs cheaper to get in a big multiple, which maybe says a lot about dysfunction in agriculture. Carlo, my producer, tells me is where Ballon is. And so Someone else says any extra money spent on helping one group of people would inevitably have to be paid for by increasing tax or decreasing services to other groups. As a member of the least squeezed middle uh, of the of the squeezed middle, rather, who paid the most and get the least in this society, I don't want an emergency budget because that would just be taking yet more money out of my pocket sooner than it has to be taken. That mm. is from Mike to five three one zero six. Do keep your thoughts coming on that. We will be going back through uh, lots more in the papers uh, with Rachel and Breeding. We're back after this. Just coming up to half past 11 uh, this Sunday morning. It is Gavin Riley with you uh, on the record here on News Talk until 1 o'clock. 53106 uh, for your texts. On the record, NT is our hashtag. Breda Brown of Unique Media and Rachel Iredale of RSM Ireland, both with me in studio. Uh, someone's been in touch, by the way. 
in defence of Ballon Eggs, which I again I have to concede is, is not an egg supplier with which I was familiar. They do produce a top quality free range product, says this person. Try them. I guarantee you, once you go Ballon, you won't go back. I have uh, to which, agree with them. They are lovely. Which which sounds like an advertising slogan that I wasn't familiar with either. But uh, I suppose it, the, one of those cases where maybe you get what you pay for and if it's a higher end product, then then maybe that's what it is. Um, there is uh, an unfortunate trend of um, stories in today's papers about people who are let down in one way or another by I was going to say the justice system, but it seems that there might be sort of multiple justice systems. Mm. There's the piece in the front page of the Sunday Times about the cancellation of 999 calls. There's the piece in the Mail on Sunday about army abusers not being put on, on the sex register. And um, Rachel, you were remarking to us during the break that um, one of the many strings to your bow is that previously you were a magistrate in Britain and you have some familiarity with members of, of the armed forces coming up in front of you notionally for civilian justice and then not really turning out that way. That's right, Gavin. So in England and Wales, criminal justice system's a little bit different. Ordinary members of the public can volunteer as magistrates where they can sit on a bench and dispense justice to their local community. So I did that for about 15 years. Uh, the bench that I sat on was Cardiff and the Vale of Glamorgan and the Ministry of Defence had an RAF base there in St. Athen, just okay. outside our patch. So we would see regularly... Um, uh, young men and women kind of on a Saturday night in Cardiff City Centre going out and um, being arrested for offences that were around public order offences drunk and disorderly for example and then when they would come into me in front of court in the next week they would always be accompanied by somebody more senior from the defence forces and there was this implicit understanding that no matter what sentence we gave these people something different would always happen back at base And I think we've got a story here in the Mail on Sunday today about how in the Irish Defence Forces that similar uh, thing is happening. So when you say something different would happen back at base and not to get too into the weeds of the English and Welsh justice system, but are you saying that the magistrate would hand down some sort of punishment or sentence or or what you like or something like that but then that would then be taken back to the barracks and they'd go into some sort of internal justice system and that could be completely ignored or dispensed with and we would have it couldn't be dispensed with so you can't dispense with what the criminal justice system dictates but we would get the sense that something different would happen back at barracks or back at the base and often we got the sense that it would be worse I think what happens that it would be worse it would be worse so you would would hand down a a fine fine, or something for for being drunk or disorderly on a Saturday night and then they'd go back to the barracks and they'd get significantly worse we wouldn't know what would happen so the sentencing guidelines would require you to do something like a fine or community service where you do X number of hours in the community doing voluntary work but the the uh, the tone of how that uh, happened and the people that would accompany these young uh, men and women was just very different but we never really explored that it was implicit for years and years that um, mm. they would be dealt with differently and how, how did it come about because given that your your turf would have included an RAF base or that it sort of becomes a more live issue for you do you ever then wonder or, or how, how did it come about that there was this parallel justice system for, for people well, who it's like we have how, how do we get courts martial in the yeah, first place it goes back to 1954 I think in Ireland so if the defendant if the accused person and the victim of a crime are both in the defence forces they don't need to go anywhere near the justice system so that can be dealt in a, a court martial behind closed doors I, and that's presu- what's being called out here in this article I presume the logic of that then was that if, if occasionally you did something while you were abroad in service that if there yeah. was a question about the jurisdiction of civilian courts that you needed to have some way to, to punish people or to, to hear a case um, for something that didn't happen on yeah. Irish soil or in Irish territory yeah. but the idea that you might have stuff that's happening on Irish soil maybe there's something that's happening in a barracks something which under criminal law 
would be a pretty egregious thing that there is this separate I'm not saying it's not robust because we don't know whether it's robust or not but that you'd have this internal military discipline system this kind of this courts martial basically what they are that have no transparency where there's no member of the public sitting in there's no court reporting there's no published legal diary no one knows what's going on that you could have stuff that's happening on Irish soil, which ought to be maybe dealt with in a civilian court. Exactly. That isn't being at all. The court marshals, there's absolutely no transparency whatsoever. And I think what the Mail on Sunday has has uh, shown is that um, for issues where there may be considered to be more serious offences, sexual assault, for example, that some of them just simply aren't even making their way to the Garda Shikona. You know, the people... Um, uh, convicted of those crimes aren't their names aren't going on the sexual offences register uh, and the the call really to make these systems more open more transparent is, is what's needed here mm. really um, I don't know whether I've missed some, some nuance in the story but I think what, what this the question it raises is is it a case that these internal uh, military courts these uh, courts martial are actually investigating and prosecuting people for sexual offences because we certainly know, thanks to the Women of Honour, that there are a slew yeah. of mm. allegations against <clears throat> members of the Defence Forces. What isn't clear is whether they are being uh, heard and dealt with and simply that a referral to the Sex Offenders Register is not being made or whether, in fact, they're not being dealt with internally at all, that some, some, there's some failing in internal justice that they're not actually get seen or heard at all at all. Yeah, I suppose my understanding on the front page of the mail is that they're saying that um, the defence forces haven't referred anyone convicted, so they are convicted. There's a, pres- there's a presumption of, that there are some, yeah, of sexual some assault or rape in a court martial, but they're not making mm. it, as Rachel said, to the to the sex offenders register. And Senator Tom Clonan then is quoted in the article as well, and mm. he's the, the the whistleblower in relation to this. And he's saying the army is dealing with sex abuse cases in a similar man- manner to how the church used to deal with victims of sexual abuse. And again, going back to what Rachel said, everything is just happening internally. You do sort of have to question why is this still happening why is it still going on a spokesperson then as well for Simon Coveney the Minister for Defence um, said that Minister Coveney has said that anyone who has suffered serious wrong of a criminal nature are urged to report their concerns to Angarda Shia Kona or the military police but again that's not offering anybody mm. a, a, an answer um, and what's the feasibility or the practicality if both the victim and the perpetrator mm. are, are part of the military and the Women of Honour then that group they issued a statement in relation to queries from the Mail on Sunday and basically saying that it's critical now that a full independent statutory investigation is carried out to understand exactly what the Department of Defence is saying when they encourage victims to go to Angar the Shia Kona. And yeah. by victims, they mean victims within mm. the Defence Forces. I, yeah. I think the problem really is that over the last couple of decades, huge strides have been made in the criminal justice system to support people going through these processes, women and men, you know, so there's victim impact statements. There are people there in court to support people as they're telling their story. The fact that these things are happening behind closed doors is problematic. And I think even after conviction, there's we don't know about how these people are supported over mm. the long term. Um, so Helen McEntee's strategy, because it's it's basically gender based violence here, domestic violence in, in what we're talking mm. about. I mean, she it's it's really ambitious in one sense, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, five years we're going to be tackling this. But the key thing, the, the thing that's going to be most difficult to pin down is the cultural shift that's going to be required mm-hmm. in, you know, really changing some of these things. Um, so uh, the strategy, she's got a budget of 363 million over the next uh, five years. Uh, maximum jail sentences for domestic abusers is going to double to 10 years. Number of refugee spaces for women, children and men. Fleeing mm-hmm. attacks in the home is also like to, uh, likely to, to double. double. Yeah. So it is, which would still be. Uh, it, it is worth noting because yeah. look, any any increase is better than what there are because mm-hmm. there are nine countries that have no refuge spaces at all. But under the Istanbul Convention, we're supposed to have 
one refuge space for every 10,000 people, mm. which thanks to the census means it should be about uh, 513 mm. spaces. And even after all of this in a five year progress, we're still only going to have 282. So we're, we're falling significantly short. Mm. Um, it is worth noting as well. And I don't mean to, to um, waylay you. Um, Helen McAtee came on this programme uh, the Sunday after the murder of Ashley Murphy and she spoke about the work that was underway on what mm. we now have as this plan. Um, but we did both acknowledge in the conversation this was the third five-year mm. plan to try and eliminate right. uh, domestic violence or, or gender-based violence. And the first two evidently had not eliminated the problem. So so I think we should all be um, really getting to grips with the idea that no matter how ambitious this plan is, it's not going to completely eliminate mm. it either. Um, it is fascinating though, isn't it, Brida, that that theme that's raised by um, the, the Mail on Sunday piece about courts martial it does dovetail significantly with the front page of the Sunday Times about the cancellation of 999 calls because um, you know it has always been the, the received official narrative that uh, of all these calls they should never have been cancelled but that no one came to significant harm as a result of these calls basically being deleted off the system and now some pretty significant reason to believe that isn't true. And I'm not sure how they could ever have made that claim. I'm sure if you did an analysis of calls over a certain period of time, you would see that there were harmful calls there. And John Mooney, in fairness to him in the Sunday Times, has some of that detail today. And basically they're saying that some of the calls that were cancelled related to uh, rape, to domestic violence and assaults on women and children. In one case, actually, there was a female traveller from Meath who sought help after she'd been subjected to a violent assault in which she was bitten on the face and kicked in the stomach. I mean, some of the the details that are in this article are, are quite horrendous. Um, there was another incident then in Galway where youths um, were trying apparently to set an intellectually disabled boy's hair on fire. So again, if somebody is ringing 999, they're not yeah. ringing it. The numbers are staggering, absolutely, aren't they? 22,500 know? calls cancelled with mm. one person cancelling 10,000 10, calls alone. I, I couldn't get over How that. you could say, given the scale of the calls, how you could ever say that yeah. no one came to significant Correct. harm as a result of those calls yeah. being effectively ignored from the system. I don't know how anyone could ever feel like they had standing to claim that anyway. But I, I'm particularly struck and you know the, the the substance of the allegation you've just read there uh, Breed about the um, a female traveller from me mm-hmm. seeking help after her face was bitten someone else a boy's hair being set on fire there's too much detail in those claims for someone to have just plucked them up mm. someone must know absolutely the, the, the hard detail of those cases and they're bringing forward those allegations now so evidently someone somewhere knows that people suffered significant harm absolutely so, so how, how someone could say no no harm here that, it's that, just mind-boggling. No, totally agree with you. And there's been apparently 55 internal disciplinary files um, that have been opened in relation to this. Um, but the outcome of those investigations are unknown at the moment. You know, so this isn't on really. And this is going on. This first came to light in October 2020. So what's that, two years ago? Mm. Um, so at this point, you know, we need to know. And also to make sure, Gavin, it's not still going on. Um, you know, I know we had an incident there during the week where there was, you know, I think the the system for 999 came down actually yeah. for about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. But that was a technical issue as opposed to somebody picking up a phone and actually terminating terminating a call and for one individual to have terminated more than 10,000 calls that just beggars belief It certainly would make you worry Um, What's worth uh, reflecting on is a couple of paragraphs in this Sunday Times piece which just outlines how originally this was was presented as a non-issue Garda headquarters initially denied the issue existed before acknowledging that a scoping exercise was later underway. The force then acknowledged that an examination of 999 call data showed the problem was widespread across the country with 22,595 calls made to the emergency services cancelled without explanation. Mm -hmm. The controversy is a subject of a number of protected disclosures by Garda of various ranks who all alleged that attempts were made by their superiors to conceal the issue when it was first discovered. Martin Kane of the Sinn Féin spokesman of personal injustice said that the attempt to downplay what happened 
was making the situation worse. And it's, it's very difficult to, yeah, to disagree and, with and that. And just the very last piece of that article, which is interesting, there is going to be a meeting uh, between the Policing Authority and the Guard the Commission on the 29th of September. So mm. that will be good to see what and the outcome And they're is. all publicly visible and attendable yes. and televised and exactly, live streamed as well. Great. So that'll be worth uh, paying a lot of attention to. Um, a lot of text and tweets still coming in about um, inflation and the cost of living and the price of, of food, for example. Uh, Vincent says, yet again, you are failing to criticise our unfit for purpose and overpaid civil service. Well, Vincent, your thoughts are on the record now. Um, Bill in Sligo says, you can't just say it's 10 years because Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have been in government since the formation of the state in one configuration or another. Um, someone else who hasn't signed their name says that when simple things like onions in our supermarkets are all from places abroad like Holland and Spain, and even in Super Value you can buy them from New Zealand, it shows the huge dysfunction in agriculture policies and insane globalisation promoted by successive governments and the EU. Surely, that person is concluding, it would make more sense for cost and for climate and everything else if you were just to, to source more local produce instead of trying to import something, maybe trying to cut off a margin of a couple of cent, which is an interesting thought. Do keep your thoughts coming. 53106 is the number for your text on the record NT, our hashtag on Twitter. Still loads more to discuss with Rachel and Breida from today's papers when we're back after this. Still joined in studio uh, by Breida Brown of Unique Media and Rachel. Rachel Iredale, who's consulting director with RSM Ireland. Um, there is a piece on page four of the Sunday Times today about the idea of a directly elected mayor. And the, um, the headline, I don't know whether it's it's uh, one of those uncharitable headlines, but it's put a question mark in it. So they're saying directly elected mayhem. Uh, and it's basically uh, talking to some various uh, interested parties and, uh, and people who know a little bit about the functioning of local government about whether it will be a good idea to have a properly empowered, directly elected mayor of Dublin, and Bertie Hearn, um, who is included in a very nice photo fit, is wearing the chain mm-hmm. of office uh, for this job, um, said that he was again. previously <laughs> again yeah. uh, was previously interested in creating such a job, but then basically dismissed the idea because he thought it would just become um, overcome by celebrities. Admittedly, celebrities would probably have to run for the job, so it's not that they can just kind of walk their way into it. Um, but it does raise some some fascinating points. Rachel, your you, uh, your eye was taken by this because you actually have some some again some previous experience of trying to shepherd the process. In Britain. Yeah, on two fronts, actually. So one, it's looking at how uh, regional mayors operate in the big cities uh, uh, across the UK. Obviously, Boris Johnson, as we know, was former mayor of London, introduced the Freedom Pass for bus. So that was his uh, uh, striking example of, of progress that he Probably made. Boris bikes. But actually, yeah. the, the mayor that stands out and is often referred to as the King of the North, uh, interestingly, is Andy Burnham. So Labour, mm-hmm. um, he kind of is the inaugural mayor of the Greater Freedom Manchester. Manchester area yeah. runs about ten councils, local authorities, and he. I didn't realize it was that many. Yeah, because he, so it's even more so than mm. Dublin, where you'd be talking about having a mayor that's running mm. four local authorities, mm. or potentially only one, depending mm. on who you listen to. That he actually has responsibility mm. for ten different yeah. councils, and okay. he did really well throughout COVID. Actually, he really came out in favour of supporting local businesses, and he really felt that he had the kind of the concerns of his constituents um, uh, to heart. Mm. What they're talking about in this article, though, is the possibility of building, you know, whole other layers of bureaucracies and hierarchies and new kind of political offices and things like that. But the the kind of the second front I had was I had run for the British government on a couple of occasions, a few citizens juries, which are analysis to a analogous to a jury in a criminal trial. So where we have citizens assemblies, they have citizens juries, but they're not like this isn't some sort of like you know public square you know hang him like Barabbas sort of stuff not quite public square but it would be a jury of you know 12 men and women good and true taking a complex policy issue and deciding on behalf of the electorate what should happen on the basis that anybody with enough time support opportunity 
is able to make a decision on mm. a complex policy issue. So the sorts of juries that I was running, were, one was to do with the DNA database. Really, really interesting. Okay. You know, when people is get arrested. Should, should, should England and Wales yeah. have one? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, okay. they do have one, but okay. how it should be run. So whether if you were arrested and a sample of your DNA was taken, whether it should stay on the DNA database for 99 years because that could exclude you from future crimes. Mm. What was happening... Or, or, or does it presume that you have some level of guilt when you're just an innocent person that's rested yeah, on the Yeah, you street? can get your, extract your DNA just from scraping your cheek. What, cheek. what was happening was disproportionate numbers of young men from ethnic minorities were being stopped and their DNA was being extracted. So it was okay. about how we should run this out. Also ran a citizen's jury on the topic of genetic testing. So the government asked me to look at the extent to which the NHS in Britain was prepared to introduce genetic testing for common disorders. That would be things like heart disease, cancer, and to see to what extent employers and insurers would use genetic information and people who were finding out about genetic predispositions to, let's say, be- yeah. breast, bowel, ovarian cancer would be flooding the public systems. So what's the, the, the moral question there? Is it that whether you should be doing this kind of mass harvesting of data, even if it was intended to inform the NHS's approach to these things? Yes, and there's a lot of private sector interest in these areas. But the the argument that we came up with was actually having this sort of information is a good thing to have. Just because it's genetic doesn't mean it should be treated substantively different from other information. You might like to know if your child is going to need glasses or is going to have an issue around hearing. Wouldn't it also be interesting to know if your child was going to be susceptible to bowel cancer, most common bowel cancer in Wales, for example, at the age of 50? You might take steps, for example, to do something about that. So the citizens juries are a way of bringing in a load of experts to talk about an issue but to put the decision not in the hands of the politicians, but yeah. in the hands of the public, because they kind of have this veil of ignorance. What yeah. should we altruistically so do we know, yeah. for the, for the yeah. benefit of everybody? Yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah. fascinated to hear that the system exists in other countries because we, we constantly hear yeah. that other countries have gone down mm. Ireland's route of having these full hundred member yeah. citizens assemblies. But I didn't know that there was already a long history of them in, yeah. in the neighbouring jurisdiction, albeit with fewer people. Um We're just about to do one on genetics in Ireland. I did my first one on genetics in 1996. So that shows how old I am. You're you're available for consultancy, (laughs) I presume. Yes. Um, What's fascinating, uh, Breed, about the the proposed mugshots, the people who have been uh, photoshopped up with their their mayoral chains um, on page four of the Sunday Times is that two of the five people they've identified are people who are currently chairing Citizens' Assemblies anyway. So Jim Gavin, who is chairing this one, the former um, the Irish Air Corps pilot and the former Dublin GA manager, um, who is chairing this assembly, is now being identified by the Sunday Times as someone who might end up taking the mayoralty himself anyway. Well, this is it. And some of the others being identified could be classified maybe as celebrities, which is what Bertie Hearn sort of doesn't want. You know, Ali Houston, who's Bono's wife. Now, all of these individuals have lots of ability in their own right. Mm. Um, and Avi Nusuluan, then, who is the assistant professor of maths in UCD. But I suppose... And yeah, but she's chairing the one on biodiversity. At the moment, yeah, so, yeah. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this topic for decades, as far as I can remember. Shows how old I am as well. <laughs> like, we still don't know how much power what power how does it work like give us a structure we just talk about a directly elected Lord Mayor yeah. how is it going to work with all certainly in Dublin with all the um, the four authorities that we already have are we getting rid of those and bringing in something else is it going to sit above it is it going to sit below it so just stop talking about well, the top line yeah. aspect and try and nail down and give us an, a, a, you know some detail and then maybe we can make a decision yeah well I think the, the question um, I'm sure by the way the Citizens Assembly is trying to get to grips with how much power they may have or mm. what's, what's the best way of structuring it all I, I think where it will all ultimately come down though is is it seen as creating more bureaucracy Mm -hmm. or is it seen as getting rid of it because everyone likes the idea of having 
a directly elected mayor if they have the power to say no we are putting out pedestrian seating here you can overrule some some council engineer mm. or chief executive mm. and they can say we're do that or that we're going to cut the cost of public transport here and we're going to set a ceiling and even you saying that Gavin I'm going I can see the rows already going on between yeah. you know the directly elected mayor and the councils there's yeah. going to be already but barging all have over the power. place but, but yeah. if, if it is someone else if you have someone else who is responsible for trying to set transport mm. policy while you also have the Department mm. of Transport and mm-hmm. TII and the NTA and you create this other layer of bureaucracy in the middle of it. And that's you know, where the whole thing comes apart. And it's actually, it's interesting and sorry not to jump away but Colin McCarthy has a really interesting piece in Sunday Indo today about, about gas, right? And just what you're saying there about do we talk about politicians or do we get advice from people who know what they're talking okay. about? And he says that uh, Minister Eamon Ryan needs to prepare for the possibility um, that engineers actually might be a better yeah. guide to what's mm. going on with the gas situation than politicians. So it could be exactly the same in terms of this uh, as you were talking about with the, with the directly elected Lord Mayor. Let's talk to the experts yeah. who know what they're dealing with here as opposed to somebody who might have a pipe dream about something. Yeah, uh, A text from Sean in East Donegal who says that Ken Livingston has always been opposed to the concept of a directly elected mayor funnily enough. That's uh, Ken Livingston who was I think the first directly elected mayor of mm. London so that's uh, someone who clearly didn't like the job he was elected to which is maybe a, a benchmark then for Bertie Hearn who doesn't want the job to fall into the hands of celebrities so maybe yeah. he might try to re- Rehabilitate his, also cost. His public life. What's the cost of this? Well, th- that's you know? an interesting one because uh, when they had the plebiscites in, uh, they didn't have one in Goa, but they had them in Cork and Waterford. Certainly, Cork and Waterford rejected it on the basis of costs. Mm-hmm. That they, even if this directly elected mayor was only paid comparably to a minister of state, mm-hmm. they one hundred and twenty thousand or so a year, that they didn't want that because mm-hmm. they thought that was just an extra drain on the county or city council mm-hmm. that they didn't want to have to be um, tolerated. Um, Limerick, which voted for it at the time, is I think officially speaking still supposed to be electing its first directly elected mayor this coming December to give them a seven and a half year term and then it would fall into five years every every time afterwards. Yeah. Um, but the government has yet to publish legislation saying exactly what powers <laughs> they're supposed to, the to have. the legislation we still don't have. Yeah, well, so yeah. That they, yeah. we're supposed to be electing the job or filling it in six months yeah. time and yet we still don't know what yeah. powers they're going to and, have, and whether it'll be the, more bureaucracy or less. The final bit of this whole jigsaw then is accountability. So, you know, who's setting out, you know, what the mayor is going to do and where's the accountability Mm. aspect? Maybe just give them one task, transport. That's Mm. where regional mayors in Britain have worked the best. And in Paris recently as well, sorting out, I think they've done 50 kilometres of cycle lanes, things like that. So Um, sorting out the links to the airport. (laughs) Does does that mean that if we we were to finally have a a train to the airport, is that we have to do? Um, Hazel Chew was quoted in this piece. The the piece on page four of the Sunday Times opens with with her testimony because uh, she remarks that the the mayor of, of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, um, had immediately come in and introduced cycle infrastructure and all these other things um, but when she came in she tried to pedestrianise some areas and she ran into roadblocks straight away but I suppose she didn't necessarily have a mandate to do mm-hmm. any of that she, no one elected her to become the mayor so mm-hmm. maybe it's understandable that there is uh, a little bit of a roadblock um, Are you volunteering for the job uh, Rachel if you're available? Because <laughs> there, there are many strings to your bow so you ought Perfect to be there Perfect candidate uh, I'm open to consulting offers Okay uh, Breedy would you for the job? I suppose it depends what the pay roll is. Well, well yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have time Gavin I'm too busy in here talking oh, to you on fair, a regular basis Indeed and yeah. we very much appreciate you coming in uh, Before we let you go Rachel the last time you were in you were talking about some of the consulting work that you're doing for the government about the extension of free school meals and I cannot believe the amount of times it has come up in discourse since people saying uh, back to school costs mm. will be very much easily managed 
um, if there were to be uh, extension of free school meals. You're still working on that. What, what is the status of that or how far away is it from fruition? Just, just to summarise, the Department of Social Protection has commissioned RSM Ireland to evaluate the National School Meals Programme. Uh, we're deep in data collection now. So for the last two or three months, we've been surveying principals. We've been collecting stories from children. I've been talking to a whole range of key stakeholders, people from charities, food banks, and putting together all that information, also talking to people on the ground about what really works. So we will be producing a report for the department late September that will collate all this evidence. Um, We're looking probably at this, you know, I don't want to reveal any conclusions because they're tentative at the moment, but possibly looking at a generational approach to Mm. um, dealing with food issues. It's it's more than just school meals. We're talking about food poverty. We're talking about nutritional safety nets. It's going to be really Uh, important work. Late September, just in time for the budget. (laughs) Great timing. Uh, Rachel Iredale of RSMR and the Breeder Brown PR Director of Unique Media. Thank you both very much uh, for coming to have a look at the Sunday papers. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PWC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. It all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.